It was a painful feeling that I first experienced as a young person. I remember whenever uh, I was growing up, a great many of my relatives uh, passed away. Whenever I was probably around eight, nine years old, I had a lot of great aunts and uncles who were elderly. My uh, parents had me later in their life, and so there were some older people there uh, whose funerals I attended. I remember one particular season, I went to about four funerals in a span of it was about five months. At the end of that, our pastor announced that he was resigning from our church. And I'll never forget that moment. I was sitting in church on a Sunday morning, and I just felt this heaviness and a weight right in the center of my chest. I hadn't felt it before. But it just felt like things were kind of going dark. And I couldn't really see any way out of it. I didn't see something beyond that. I think there's a lot of words you could used to describe that feeling. You may call it sadness. You may call it hopelessness. I would call it despair. That's what I was sensing there in that moment. I found in my life it's come and gone. kind of depends on what I'm facing at the time, what I may be feeling uh, according to my circumstances. Now, despair is different from anxiety. Anxiety is when you fear what's coming around the corner. Despair is when you can see nothing but darkness to which you can't even see if there's a corner there. It comes in hard times. Anxiety is fear of what could be coming. Despair is more like hopelessness. It's something that was felt uh, particularly in, in one of the bloodiest wars in America. It was the Civil War. It was brother against brother. It was father against son. During that time, a poem was written by Longfellow, one that you've probably heard set to music called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. He wrote that in either 63 or 64 in the middle of the war. The carol's first verse is very peaceful. It says, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play. By the way, that music was beautiful just now, wasn't it? It was amazing. In music sweet, the tones repeat, there's peace on earth, goodwill to men. But the carol doesn't continue that way. You go past that first verse, and the author's heart is laid bare. He said, and in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song. Of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Right after he wrote that poem, Longfellow sent a letter to one of his good friends. And he said, I know when I picked up my son at the train station that you were sitting at the train station alone because your son didn't make it through the war. He said, how much I have felt for you. It makes my heart bleed when I think of it. That your son would come back no more. Maybe you're a little bit feeling that way this morning. Because life can be dark, and life can be hard. And the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, who was no stranger to abandonment and beatings and affliction, knew all too well the dark reality of this world. And yet, look at what he said in 2 Corinthians 7.4. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. And then you get to verse like what you see in Nehemiah 8.10. In Nehemiah 8.10, it talks about this joy as being an essential, important kind of thing for the joy of the Lord 
is your strength. Joy, as we get from that verse, is actually quite important. You're going to need it as you go through this life. What I want to talk about this morning is, well, then how do we get that joy? How can we find this overflowing joy that we're reading about in these verses that we sing about so much at Christmas time? And I want to look at our, a few verses this morning, actually a few passages, as we continue on through this series called The Enduring Promises of Christmas. Looking at promises made back in the Old Testament as a promise is what would happen at some point in the New Testament. And we're in this, se- this season of Advent. And I want to keep reminding you what Advent is. It's the season, is a time of preparation. It's, it means coming. It directs our hearts and minds to Christ's second coming at the end of time and to the anniversary of our Lord's birth on Christmas. We are between two Advents. We look back and celebrate the birth of our Savior. At the same time, we look forward to His next coming. As a matter of fact, many of the songs we sing on Christmas, in the Christmas season, when you think about the words, would be just as applicable to Christ's second coming. As a matter of fact, the the hymn Joy to the World is actually about the second coming of Christ, not the first coming. So we want to talk about Christmas joy this morning. I'll be reading through several passages. I'll pick those up as we go through the different points. But I want to approach our subject this way. First, we'll define joy. What is it when we're talking about joy? And then I want to talk about three sources of joy that if you neglect these sources of joy in your life, you can anticipate having less joy. And that would include access, sharing, and deliverance. I'll talk about what each of those means, but those are the three sources I'm telling you right now so you'll have them in the forefront of your mind, access, sharing, and deliverance. First, let's talk about, well, what is joy? When we're talking about joy, what do we mean? Because if you look up Joy in the dictionary, it's basically going to equate joy with happiness. And I don't think that's really the Christian notion of joy. As a matter of fact, I've, I've looked up uh, several times the definition of joy. It was, it was tough. Whenever I was in seminary, I was writing a paper on joy. The best definition I came up with at the time was written by Daniel Bistrom. He put this in his thesis called A Believer's Joy. Joy is the deep abiding assurance that Jesus Christ is in sovereign control of all the universe. I like that definition, but I came up with a new one. I found a better one. One that I think surpasses that one. It came from Kay Warren. After she lost her son to suicide, she wrote a book called, listen to this, Choose Joy Because Happiness Isn't Enough. In the book, she says this, happiness is completely connected to what's happening to us on the external circumstances of our lives. Joy is unrelated to what's happening to us on the outside, said Warren. Now, what she's saying is, this is important to remember. See, the opposite of happiness is sadness. Happiness is when, you know, circumstances are are favorable, things are going well. You've got seasons of happiness you roll through. You've got seasons of sadness you roll through. But the opposite of joy isn't sadness. The opposite of joy is despair. It's when things don't look like they're ever going to get better. It doesn't look like there's any end in sight. She goes on and says this. If joy is only tied to our external circumstances, we're all lost. 
Very few of us ever experience joy. But when joy is turned around and has my definition of joy, it's the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right. And the determined choice to praise him in all things. And I like what she says again because she's disconnecting joy from happiness. Because I believe that Christ experienced perfect joy in his life. And yet, you know what? Christ was not happy all the time. In Matthew 26, 38, he said, My soul is deeply grieved, even to the point of death. So what we need is a transcendent joy, ultimately rooted in Christ. So how do we get there? How do we get there? That's what I want to talk about. I want to suggest three sources. There are more. I want to look at these three this morning. We're going to start out in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. Isaiah 40, I want to read verses 3 through 5, where we get this first source. It says this. A voice cries in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now what's going on here? First let's get this in its context. Now Prophecies have multiple fulfillments. I saw somebody put their hand up this like this and looked at it, and you see your thumb, your, your forefinger, and your, your middle finger. You see all three. And you can think about prophecies having multiple fulfillments, like you can see the first and second and third. The first fulfillment of the prophecy that Isaiah wrote is going to happen whenever the Israelites are uh, taken out of exile. They'll be in Babylon. Isaiah is saying, look, bad things are going to happen. You're going to be exiled, but then guess what? going to be brought out. They're going to be making a 900-mile journey from Babylon back to the promised land, back to a place. That's what's going to happen. God's going to return them home. God's going to come to his people's aid. God's going to give them access back home. He's going to remove every physical obstacle to make sure they can get back to the promised land where they belong. But then there's going to be an ultimate or a secondary fulfillment in John the Baptist. In Luke 3, 4 through 6, this passage from Isaiah is quoted as pertaining to John the Baptist. That he was the one who came to prepare the way. Only in this case, John isn't preparing the people to get access back to the land. He's not preparing them to, to get access back to a place. Rather, John the Baptist is saying, you're going to have access to a person. And that person is going to be your new home. You know what makes heaven heaven? It's because Christ is in heaven. People will have physical access to him in a way they've not had before. This is what happened when Christ became incarnate. One of the greatest, if not the greatest miracle in the Bible is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That he would become human. That people would have physical access to him in ways it had never happened before. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to seek God, you'd have to do it through a priest. The priests and the prophets would represent God to the people. And the people had access to God through the, the, the temple through the priest, but things changed when Christ came. Do you know why? When he died, the curtain ripped. The curtain of the temple ripped. 
It used to be only the priest had access to the most holy part of the temple where God resided in the ark. But that changed. You and I now have access to God in a way that would not have been possible before. So the first place, we, our first source of joy is this access to God that we have. It, it's a secret revealed in 1 John 1, uh, 3 and 4. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This fellowship, this access. And when we consider how small our fellowship is with God, oftentimes, I know in my own life, just the shallowness of it, is it so hard to believe that we can often live comparatively joyless lives? You may know the name Warren Buffett. I think he's in the top, I forget where he ranks now in terms of wealthy man. I think he's worth $40 billion. One time he had this, uh, this charitable auction to where someone could have lunch with him. And a guy ended up paying $351,000 to have lunch with Warren Buffett. Do we recognize that the value and the wisdom of God is worth far more than $350,000? Or a million or a billion. We have access to the eternal God in prayer and worship. And if if you really question if you have this, this joy, you can even think of, of joy as like a sort of a spiritual buoyancy that allows you to uh, get through the hardest of times without being caught into this trap of despair. If you question, I'm not sure I have that in my life, my first question to you is gonna be, are you praying? Tell me about your prayer life. With whom are you fellowshipping? Or are you neglecting that? If you neglect that, you are neglecting one of the greatest sources of joy that God has given you. So we find joy on our access to God. The way was prepared. I want to look more into this second source of joy now. We find it in Luke chapter 1, verses 8 through 17, where we meet a priest by the name of Zechariah. Zechariah would be the father of John the Baptist. And in Luke, I'm actually going to start in Luke 1, verse 11. We see this priest who's in the temple offering incense to God. Something happened while he was there in that temple. It says, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words 
which will be fulfilled in their time. Well, he should have just shut up and listened. <laughs> but because he didn't, he's going to be shut up for a while. Zechariah in the temple. This was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity the priest had, and all of a sudden he is gripped with terror at what he sees in front of him. Just him and this angel. People outside were praying while he was there. Evidently, he and his wife Elizabeth had been praying for a child for quite some time. Their prayers are being answered. He's going to give birth to a son. They're to name him John. The angel says he will be a joy and delight to you, and, and many will rejoice because of his birth. The child's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he'll be taking this special Nazarite vow. It wasn't for everyone, but in the case of John, he'll take this vow, kept free from wine and fermented drink, to serve God all his life. So he would not drink alcohol, would not cut his hair, would never come in contact with dead bodies. That was part of this vow. And, and clearly this boy was special. God was going to use him to bring joy to his parents. And because of his life, many were going to be brought back to God, brought to wisdom. And because of his life, he would prepare people for something wonderful that was about to happen. And you see the connections between the Isaiah passage and, and this story in Luke in verse 17. This baby boy is going to be brought along to prepare the people for the arrival of the Lord. And, and John will be a joy to his family and a joy to the world because he will be the one calling in the wilderness to prepare the way for the arrival of the Son of God. That brings us to the second source of joy. And that is sharing. Sharing. Sharing what specifically? Sharing the good news. Sharing the gospel. Do you know one of the greatest opportunities that we have in the Christmas season is to prepare the way for others to see Jesus for who he really is. And the most joyful people during this time of year are the ones who have experienced hope and peace. You know what we've been talking about. And when you're experiencing hope and peace, you know what? It gets contagious. People see it. And you only can experience that truly when you've put your trust in Jesus Christ. Then it comes out in the way you speak to others and, and the way you may serve others and treat others. All as a means for preparing the way for people to meet Jesus. Because you know what? There are people all around you every day that are absolutely miserable. Chasing joy in all the wrong places. Never being satisfied because they're not tapping into the true source of joy. And yet when we go through the New Testament, we see a constant pattern. Usually when people will meet Jesus, if they believe, they are in a moment reconciled to God. And then usually they'll have a dinner with Jesus there. And you know what they'll do? They'll invite people to a meal with Jesus. You know why? So they can meet him too. So they can know Christ. And they can know this reconciliation. And then it's, it's infectious. And the gladness that comes from a reconciliation with God has a snowballing effect. That's why Paul said that the love of Christ compels us. That love for Christ is infectious. And we want everyone to experience what we've discovered and what we've tasted. Paul's going to call this ministry we have a ministry of reconciliation. 
2 Corinthians 5.18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and then listen to this, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You and I now have the privilege of showing others how they also can be reconciled to God. Because most people are enemies of God. Until you put your faith in Christ and trust Him, you're an enemy of God. But in a moment, you become a friend. And by the way, the best enemy you could have in the world is God. Because you've got an enemy that loves you. And wants you to be reconciled to Himself. So how can you show people the joy that you have and introduce them to Christ? How can your life be this beacon of hope because of a love that you have for Jesus? Something that Spurgeon wrote that I absolutely love. He said, to be a soul winner is the happiest thing in this world. And with every soul you bring to Jesus Christ, I love this, you seem to get a new heaven here upon earth. If you've ever had the pleasure of sharing that gospel story with somebody and seeing them come to saving faith, there is nothing in the world like it. It has a joy that is all its own. And if you neglect, and I neglect, opportunities we have, we are neglecting a source of joy that God has given to us. So when you leave today, there's actually a stack of cards out there on the welcome desk. We've kind of scooted it off to the side to give... We realize this was becoming a choke point right here out in front of these doors and we want to give people more room to get in. But off to the side of that welcome desk, there's a stack of cards that lists all of the activities we've got going on for Christmas Eve. You know, Christmas Eve is the largest crowd that we have in the year and it is the greatest evangelistic opportunity that we have as a church on Christmas Eve. So grab one of those cards. You know what? Just take it to a neighbor and it could spur a gospel conversation you could have with them. But just invite them. Invite them to church. And then look for that opportunity to have a conversation about Christ. Don't neglect that source of joy in telling others the good news. So we find joy in access to God. We find joy in sharing. And look at this final source of joy. We find in Luke uh, chapter 1, verses 57 through 66. Now recall what happened. Zechariah had this encounter with an angel in the temple. He didn't listen. Shot his mouth off. Now he can't speak. He's been able to speak this entire time he had this conversation with this angel, which should have just been, shouldn't have been a conversation, should have just listened. But he did this. He and his wife were old. They didn't think they could have a child. His wife Elizabeth became pregnant. Verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made sons to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. I'd love to have seen that, by the way. And he asked for a writing tablet. And he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard him laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? 
for the hand of the Lord was with him. So the baby is born, and there's this familiar discussion that takes place. What are we going to name the new baby? People were suspicious. I don't know what they were suspicious of. Zachariah, is she making you be quiet right now? You tell us. They all expected him to be named Zachariah. However, both Elizabeth and Zachariah agreed his name should be John. That name means graced by God. Or Jehovah has been gracious. And and this name that is given to the boy, it, it talks about everything that's going to surround his life. The joy, not just for him, but for all the people around. And God's been gracious and gave Elizabeth and Zachariah a son. He was gracious uh, because through John's life, the world was going to be prepared for the coming Messiah and Savior, Jesus. And notice his reaction when he regains his ability to talk. Now, what, what would you have said? Why did he make me be quiet all this time? That wasn't fair. Why did we have to wait this long to have a child? Everybody else could have a child when they were younger. No. He started blessing God. Now, that goes to this intentionality of, of choosing joy. And remember that last part of Kay Warren's definition, determined choice to praise him in all things. Now, they had an immediate deliverance from their problems in this passage. But we can praise God not only from these If you experience an immediate deliverance, great. But, you know, what we really praise God for is an ultimate deliverance. An ultimate deliverance that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, see, this is why we can have this kind of uh, spiritual buoyancy and and joy today. And and I don't know what you may be praying for deliverance from. I don't know what hard time you're going through right now. You know, my wife and I, we went through infertility for uh, over a decade. It was very painful. It was very hard. We ended up adopting a child. God may or may not deliver you from the current problem that you're in and the difficulty that you're facing. But we always know we have this ultimate deliverance from sin and death. Because, you know, even someday even the greatest of human experiences is going to come to an end. And in this world, and in, in, in its history, it's all this prelude and foretaste. Uh, you know, all the sunrises and the sunsets, all the symphonies and all the rock concerts and all the good things that happened. All the feasts and friendships, you know, they're just whispers of what's to come. The very best experience you have on earth is still just a shadow of what's awaiting for you and I in eternity. It's a prologue to a bigger story in a better place. Only guess what? It never ends. J.I. Packer put it this way. He said, hearts on earth say in the discourse of a joyful experience, I don't want this ever to end. But it invariably does. The hearts in heaven say, I want this to go on forever and it will. And there could be no better news than this. Putting this all together find this overflowing joy in Christ through access to him, sharing his good news, and through his ultimate deliverance. It's why he came to redeem and reconcile sinful men. You know, in that carol, uh, Christmas Bells, um, that uh, 
Longfellow wrote that I, that I wrote that I mentioned in the beginning. There's another stanza to that. And we aren't currently entrenched in a civil war like he was, but we've still got, we have a lot of cracks in our country's foundation. And many people are comparing this time we're in to further complication down the road. It's not totally unlike the times they experienced before the Civil War. And we see it in the news cycles. It's like a coming apocalypse. But listen to this last stanza of Christmas Bells by Longfellow. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. See, even Longfellow in the darkest of times knew that this would not be forever. And God is bringing his kingdom to us. The last thing we see in the Bible is this image of a new heaven, a new earth with no more death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. You know, every day the world ends a little bit more and more. But one day it will fully end. And justice is going to roll down like a river. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for the good gifts that you offer us. This wonderful gift of joy, God. Let us not miss it. Help us to choose it every day. Through prayer, God, not neglecting the access we have to you, God. By not neglecting opportunities we have to make you known to others. Partly by experiencing the joy itself, but then not keeping that source of joy to ourselves, Lord. And, and Father, I pray that our minds will be set in eternity in the sense, God, that we will not forget where our ultimate home is. It's as much a person as it is a place. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your willingness to become a man, to be born a helpless child, and that we live with the hope that someday you will come again. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen.